Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting early this morning from another wintry day here in south-central British Columbia. Today, we'll continue where we left off last episode, challenging listeners to choose to focus on the change that we wish to see and to put our, all of our attention and energy into building a new world that makes the existing version obsolete. It's our choice. Live in the darkness or bring light forth. I am choosing to do the latter. But to do that, first we need to realize what we're up against, and this episode will attempt to do that. Joining us again today is Donald Lee, the Canadian author that wrote the book, What the Hell is Going On? Today we'll dive deep into evidence supporting a global conspiracy to control the population at the hands of an unnamed few. In his book, What the Hell is Going On?, Don draws from information from a dozen different fields and presents ideas you may not have heard elsewhere. He connects the dots on a web of fraud to expose what's really going on, how we came to this, and what we can do to get out of it. Don exclaims that we're on a well-worn path to totalitarian slavery, but there's still time to detour to another path. It's up to every single person to open their eyes, understand what's really going on, and make this choice. The eclectic Donald Lee, apart from being a spiritual author and speaker, has or has been a, music, a musician, a band director, an economist, a businessman, and much more. Donald, it's a pleasure to speak with you again today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, uh, Michael. It's a joy to chat with you again. Yes, absolutely. And, and we'll uh, have to just uh, warn listeners that we're both a little congested, and uh, I think like many people are right now, so uh, excuse any hof, uh, coughing or hacking and, and uh, <laughs> those type of uh, problems. So, Don, before we get started with the main focus of this interview today, uh, could you give us some insights into who the young Donald Lee was, and what advice would that young man of 18 or 20 years old have for the present version of Don? <laughs> oh, that's funny that... The young man. Well, I wasn't too much different from most male teenagers. <laughs> um, I, I was really into music, but I was into lots of things, right? As I went through uh, high school, I was, you know, I was uh, avidly involved in our, my school band, and my principal instrument is clarinet, and I was, you know, been taking clarinet lessons, and and I. It, I was going to go on and have a career as a as a musician, as a performing musician. That that was my plan. But I was also, you know, like like many young people, you you have lots of interests. I was always interested in sports. I was on uh, for many years, right up to when I was well finished finished high school, I guess eighteen. You know, I was on our our local summer club swim team every summer. I. Uh, uh, skied competitively downhill skiing <clears throat> i was into uh, running and did track and cross country and you know all that sort of stuff i was on our school debating team you know i was i was into all kinds of stuff and girls like, like every teenage guy so uh, where, where did i i come from but um yeah i don't know was that <laughs> Does that answer well enough? Yeah, and then and then how about would, would that young man have any advice for uh, the present version of Donald today? Well, I think it's more the other way around. The the, the sixty four year old Donald Lee would have advice for the eighteen year old. And all right, all right, and then give but us the eighteen year olds are are typically not very open to advice from sixty four year olds. <laughs> true. True. So, and then give us some insights too into your lifelong spiritual quest that you describe. Well, that's interesting because, you know, when, when COVID hit and I, like most people had to pivot, change all my plans because, you know, I, 
when the whole world locked down, I couldn't do what I had intended to do, not even get my hair cut. So I decided to become a hippie again. And um, uh, I'm sorry, Michael. Can you ask me the question again? Uh, do, do you give us some insights into your lifelong spiritual quest? Oh, okay. So, yeah, sorry. I blame it on my white hair. My brain cells have all all gone out into my hair. So, you know, my spiritual quest is quite interesting. And, and I started to write a spiritual memoir in 2020, you know, when I couldn't do anything else and none of us could do anything else. And so I did go kind of go back over my life and, and start to write down, you know, episodes that, well, like, you know, how things twigged. One of the important ones was I went to a summer jazz camp when I was probably uh, 14, 15 years old. And one of the other, you know, kids at the band camp was really into this guy called Edgar Casey, and I thought Edgar who? What? <laughs> like who is? And uh, you know, so he was just always talking about it. So what? You know, I when I got home, I went to a bookstore. That's what we did in, in the old days. You know, we didn't just go to our computers. We actually had to drive to a bookstore, and I started, you know, looking for books. I started reading about this guy Edgar Casey. And that was not the first, but sort of one of the first, particularly in, a, in the teenage years, that started to really expand my mind and my consciousness about, um, you know, the whole spiritual side of life. Because my parents were atheists. I grew up in an atheist household, and we didn't have, we didn't have that kind of, you know, a religious background, really. So that was, you know, one of the key things. And that, you know, was a big part of opening my whole um, uh, consciousness as a teenager. Because the, in the teenage years, this is when usually people are really open. You start expanding your awareness beyond your family and just your locality. And a lot of people are really spiritually curious and spiritually exploring in their teenage years. We... We tend to forget about that and uh, to, you know, not feed that desire amongst teenagers. But it, it's a perfectly normal, almost universal um, interest in adolescence. Mm, that's interesting. Actually, I was uh, having a very similar conversation to this yesterday with a colleague of mine. So it's uh, interesting that it's bumped up again. And then so, Don, tell us, why do you see patterns where other people may not? Well, that's a very good question, Michael. And when I started writing this current book, What the Hell's Going On, I, I hadn't really figured out the whole idea of pattern recognition. That kind of came more clearly in, in later. It, I did eventually seven drafts of the book. So that came in, in later drafts. I more and more began to realize I'm seeing patterns. And I'm learning patterns that I wasn't really aware of before. And then... You know, as you learn more patterns, you see more patterns. And so I present that idea very early in the book because I think it's fundamental and I don't understand why basically no one is talking about it. And I introduce the idea with a little story, a little vignette of a, a TV sitcom that I saw decades ago. And it's really weird how these things from decades ago will stick in your memory when you can't remember what your wife told you to pick up at the store 10 minutes ago. But it was a, so the, the scene in the sitcom, it's a, the scene is a doctor's office 
and there's a patient in the, in the doctor's office and he's going on with his self-diagnosis, right? Telling the doctor what, what his own diagnosis is. And the doctor's half listening and half looking at a, an x-ray photograph in his hand. When the patient pauses for a second, the doctor hands him the x-ray and says, you're pretty knowledgeable. What do you think about this x-ray? And the patient looks at it for a second or two and then he declares, that's a compound fracture of the tibia. And the doctor chuckles a bit and says, really? So actually, it's a perfectly healthy set of lungs. And it's a bit of a funny scene, but it's also a beautiful metaphor for what's going on in our world. And we, we wonder, like, how can somebody mistake lungs for legs? But all of us know that an x-ray photograph is an image in shades of black and white. It's patterns of light and dark. And obviously, the patient wasn't familiar. He'd never been taught that pattern. And so he didn't recognize it, even though he was looking right at it. If he were taught the pattern of lungs, then he'd be able to recognize that pattern when he saw it again. And so it is in our world. All of us are looking at the events of the world, but we don't, we, we've never been taught certain patterns. And so we look at the events and we think there's something else. We're looking at lungs, but we think we're seeing legs. Or we're looking at, at things, at events, and they seem random because we don't understand the connection between them. We've never been taught that. And so in the book, I explain certain patterns, the pattern of fraud, the pattern of communist subversion, the, the pattern of communist subversion, the way the KGB did it in the Soviet era, and how the, the Chinese communists are doing it now because they, they're doing things a little differently. They're not they're not approaching the world the way the Soviets did. And so nobody's been taught this. Recently, people in Canada have been shocked to find out there's that there's Chinese police stations in Canada. How can that be? Well, that really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just one little aspect of how the Chinese Communist Party is subverting the Western world and gradually exerting control. Like that's part of their strategy. And so I have a chapter that kind of sets out what the Chinese are doing. And so you can recognize that pattern. And it is with all of all of the rest of the book. I keep coming back to that. Here's a pattern. You recognize the pattern, the pattern of psychological warfare, etc. So patterns are, are critically important. So these are almost our filters of perception that if we are not if we're, if we're unaware or these filters aren't catching this information, we simply accept it or do not recognize it. And once we are made aware of it, then we can actually see more clearly the actual procession that's going in front of us. Yes. Yes, that, that's very right. You, you could certainly express it that way. So, and then help us understand the, what the fundamental deceptions perpetrated by models are. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's a, it's a big question. So, and we're not talking about fashion models here, obviously. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I know. <laughs> well, fashion models are deceptive in some ways too, but it's a little bit different, right? <laughs> so, what what we're talking about is what are called computer models, and once again, even that term is a bit of a deception. They're not computer models; they're mathematical models. Now. 
you know, most people can't even add and subtract anymore. You know, we we rely on. That's <laughs> funny. I just, you know, I was uh, I was on the road yesterday and I stopped and picked up. Uh, I had bought a slice of pizza, and uh, and it was five dollars and twenty five cents. Or no, so five dollars and fifty cents. So I gave the guy a five dollar bill and two quarters. And uh, it's funny. He had he had the five dollar bill in one hand and the two quarters in the other hand. Well, it's five dollars and fifty one cents, right? And of course, we don't have pennies anymore, so they always round these things, right, either up or down. And so it was it was kind of funny. It was a young guy. Well, everybody's young compared to me, just about. But he had the five dollar bill in one hand and the two quarters in the other hand. And I said, you know, five fifty one. He said, yeah. I said, well, so, you know, like 550, right? He said, yeah, if you're paying cash, 550. And he was looking at the two quarters in one hand. And I said, so I gave you 550. And he said, uh, 50. You know, and it, like it had confused him that he had a five dollar. It was funny. Anyway, so, yeah, you, you know, we're so reliant on any kind of a machine to do simple arithmetic for us that, that we're, you know, you know, Arithmetic is just gone. So when it comes to mathematical models, like this is just like way over the head of most people, but it's not that hard to understand the basics. And when I did my economics degree, which in economics in the modern world is extremely mathematical, and I did a combined minor in mathematics and statistics. So I've taken lots of mathematics courses and statistics courses. It doesn't make me an expert, but it does mean that I have a wee bit more insight into mathematical modeling than the average person. And mathematical models are the day in and day out work of a working economist. And I did some work with mathematical models and I understand at least some of the mathematical properties of the models. So a mathematical model is a system of equations. And all of us who went through school have worked with systems of equations. It's not so strange as it sounds. For example, in junior high school, when we learn algebra, we all of us have solved a, a simple system of equations such as something like uh, 4x plus 2y equals 12. That's one equation, right? And another equation is, say, 3x plus 7y equals 22. So x is the same in both equations and y is going to be the same. So this is a simple equation, a system of equations with two variables or two unknowns and two equations. And we can solve that system. There's a unique solution for that system of equations. And there's a couple of different mathematical ways to work that out. So that's a system of equations. Now, when we get, uh, for example, economic models, we have, okay, how are, we have a whole bunch of equations, and in each equation is a mathematical statement. We could make that statement in English. I mean, say, for example, interest rates are dependent upon, you know, this factor and that factor and that factor. There's, there's a finite number of factors, a limited number of things that factor into what interest rates are going to be or what the total output in, in an economy is going to be, what we call the gross domestic product, etc. Right. So we come up with all of these these understandings um, in English 
about the relationships between various, we call them variables, right, in the economy. And we can put together a whole, a huge system of equations. And I say huge, but like maybe it's only five or six equations. Maybe it's 50 or 60 equations. Now, once you get, um, because as you add more equations, uh, the work uh, to do these, the number of steps in figuring out the solution increases exponentially. So you can figure out the simple two unknown, two equation uh, with, I think, three, three mathematical steps, three steps of arithmetic. You can figure that out. But once you get beyond about four equations and four unknowns, you can't do this with pencil and paper. You literally won't live long enough to do all the all the calculations with pencil and paper. So nobody really used systems of equations or mathematical models very much until computers came along. Computers crunch numbers. That's their strong suit, right? So starting particularly in the 1980s when personal computers came along, and when I was working on my economics degree during the 1980s, I would go to the computer lab at the university because I didn't have, a, you know, most of us didn't have personal computers. We went to the computer lab and um, you use the main, you, you access the mainframe computers of the university to work out these mathematical models. And even that would take some time and it would print out, you, you might remember, I don't know if you're old enough or not, Michael, to remember, it would, you know, print out these reams of paper on these big pr printers that, <laughs> that ran on rolls. But it was kind of funny now. So you can, with computers, if you have, you know, 6, 10, 12, 20 equations and similar, the same number of unknowns, as long as you have as many equations as you have unknown quantities, you can you can solve the system. So we use computers to solve these mathematical models. But there's a couple important things. And, you know, when we people started to do this in the 1980s with, you know, mathematical models of the economy, you know, they say, oh, we can we can figure out, you know, if, if the Bank of Canada raises interest rates by half a percent, we can figure out what the effect is going to be on the gross domestic product, right? We just put those, put half a percent into our little mathematical model, run the computer, and then voila, it pumps out a number. But, you know, the first models, they didn't work at all. They were terrible. But they've improved over time. And with economic models, we, we've come to the point where at least they're useful. They're never a prediction of the future. And that's important to understand. Mathematical models do not predict the future. The future is, by definition, unknowable. And mathematical models cannot predict. What they do is produce what we call a projection. Now, prediction and projection, their words, they sound so much the same, and we're tempted to conflate the two things, but they're not the same. And um, so economic models produce a projection. And they're good enough to be useful. And they're good enough to be useful for two important reasons. Number one, we have a reasonably good, not, not fantastic, but reasonably good general theory of the economy. And the second reason is we have enough economic data. We have data on 
you know, all of these various economic quantities, interest rates, um, you know, gross domestic product, inflation rates, imports, exports, like all the different economic variables you might want to track. We have we have data on all this going back many decades. And so, you know, usually monthly, some cases quarterly, but um, we have enough data. So those are two fundamental things. So we have a good general theory of the economy and we have enough data to um, to make the you know, the projections useful. But at the same time, well, a couple other things. Let me point in a couple other things about economic models. First of all, the economy is a human system. Being humans ourselves, we're able to understand human behavior. Not perfectly, but well enough. And what's the other point? Donald, Hannah, let, let me just jump in there because I think we're getting a little bit sidetracked. The, 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 I appreciate all the information, but and, and I guess this, the concept between a prediction and a projection, does that lie in the deception of, of how these models can be used? Well, it's, it's even more than that. And I'm sorry for the long explanation. And it's a, it's a little easier to, to read it on paper in the book than it is to hear it or speak it. But the, the point that I, I do take several pages in the book to try to explain this because most of the the deceptions, the frauds that we see that are coming up in our world today are based on what are called models. And this word model is so overused that it's really meaningless. And so we have, you know, climate models. And the point I make in the chapter on the climate is they're not climate models. We don't have a climate model for two reasons. Number one, we don't have a general theory of the climate. We don't, we don't understand enough about how the Earth's climate works, even to be able to explain it in words. That, that's what a general theory of climate would be. If you can't explain how a, a, a system, I don't like that word either, because it, it, again, the word system, is used to mean so many things, it doesn't mean anything. But let's just call it the climate. If you don't can't even explain in words how the climate works, there's no way you can explain it in mathematics. So what we have are not really climate models. They are complicated quantitative means of projecting our assumptions into fantasies. And that, that might sound extreme, but you know, I did talk, I think, in our last interview about how uh, when our perception of the world becomes distorted, as it does in this whole process of mass formation, then the way we perceive reality is that we're not actually perceiving reality. We're perceiving some distorted reality or some alternate reality, or what I call is it's really a fantasy. And so we, our actions, our responses are not based on reality, but our, our responses are based on a fantasy. And that's what we get from all of these models. And so our actions as humans end up to be responses to a fantasy and entirely inappropriate responses to reality. And we see this with the climate models. It, like <laughs> they're, they're not models at all. They're, they're a way of projecting assumptions into fantasies. And we see this, they just simply don't fit the data. And we've seen this for 20 years now that the output of climate so-called models 
do not fit the data. <laughs> they have zero predictive power. And yet all of the fear that's generated with the whole climate fraud is based on the models. It's not based on evidence. I mean, I look out my window right now. It's December in Alberta. It's cold and there's snow on the ground. It's basically like every December in my whole life. The climate has not changed noticeably during my lifetime. Now, we could quibble about, oh, maybe it's a half a degree warmer now than it was in the 1980s or not. Like, like this, is, this is a meaningless difference. This is, this is nothing to be afraid of. This is hardly noticeable. And so, so yeah, these, these models, and the same thing, the whole COVID thing, oh, we've got a lockdown, we're gonna, millions of people are going to die. It was all based on what they called a model. But as I point out in, in that particular chapter, it wasn't a model at all. It was a, a, it was a quantitative means of projecting as, assumptions into fantasies because the assumptions were all wrong. And so the, the output of the model was pure fantasy. And reality never happened that way. Yes, yes. All right, well, let's, let's get into some of these underlying factors that are causing this to come to be. Um, and in your book, you, you speak of a KGB defector known as Yuri Besmanov that shocked the West in the early 80s by revealing that there was a concerted effort being applied to subvert the West towards a communist agenda. Let's take a look at this process and how it was put into action. And, and maybe let's begin with the word subversion. What does it mean? And have these tactics been in use for a long time? Or is this a new phenomenon? Oh, no, it's, it's old. In fact, I, in several points in the book, I reference the, the ancient Chinese military uh, general and uh, writer, Sun Tzu. And, you know, we, we don't pronounce his name properly in English, but I don't know exactly how the, the proper pronunciation is. But much of what we're seeing in terms of strategy and tactics today is exactly things that he wrote down in his book, you know, two and a half centuries ago. So, the, no, the techniques and tactics are not new at all. But the Soviets um, codified this. Okay, how do we go about bringing about world communism? I mean, communism, the ideas that it stemmed from Karl Marx, it was always about the whole world. It's, it was never about just one country. You know, they, it was always about spreading this all over the world. It It should be no surprise to anybody, but, you know, people are you know, unwilling to accept that, well, of course they want to spread communism all over the world. So the the, China, the, the Soviets, sorry, they really codified this. And Yuri Bezmanov, who defected to the West in the late 70s and eventually lived out the rest of his lives in, life in Canada, actually, some people are familiar with him. And, you know, quite a few commentators have mentioned his name in the last few years. So he he was a KGB agent. And he, this is exactly what he did. And he was worked for, for several years in India. And, you know, when he defected to the West, he wrote this book um, called Love Letter to the West, I think is the title of the book. There's also a, uh, an essay drawn, drawn from it that kind of summarized the whole book. And one has one title and the other has another title. I could be wrong off the top of my head. But he said, okay, this is what we do in the KGB. This is how we try to turn countries to communism. And there's four steps. The first step he calls, <clears throat> excuse me, demoralization. The second step he calls destabilization. The third step is crisis. And the fourth step is normalization. 
And so Don, let me just jump in there, Don. So is, is there actually a written manual then for these sort of tactics, uh, like a, a KGB manual that describes all these processes? Oh, I'm certain there was. In, in essence, Yuri Bezmanov's book is, you know, his writing down of, okay, here's a KGB operating manual, guys. It goes like this. And he didn't, he didn't have the binder, <laughs> you know, that he brought over with him, but it was all in his head because he'd done it. He said, this is what we do. And so first step, demoralization. And this is a long-term process. And he says in his book, says, you know, everybody has a sort of a romanticized um, idea of what espionage is all about, right? We watched too many James Bond movies. I just watched another one a few days ago, right? (laughs) I mean, oh, yeah, this, this, you know, this, this is what secret agents do. And he said, no, no, no. He said, almost, you know, only a tiny part of the KGB budget and and effort was spent in that area. Most of it was, was the 90% of it was always this very slow, long-term process of trying to, to slowly change other countries so that over a period of a generation or several generations, you essentially turn them to communism. Hmm. And so he said it goes by various names. Um, the, the, the term he uses most of the time is called active measures, but we would call it also subversion. He also calls it psychological warfare. Um, he uses these terms rather interchangeably, although psychological warfare really has a, a slightly different meaning. So this is subversion. This is communist subversion or call it in a more general sense, totalitarian subversion. And it's been going on in the West for a century because the the soviets started doing it very overtly in the 1920s as soon as basically the the you know the russian civil war was over uh, it wasn't it wasn't all done in 1917 right the, the civil war went on until about 1921 or so uh, before they really sort of had control of the whole soviet union and even then there was a great deal then really began the process of normalization within the whole Soviet Union. And for, you know, a couple decades after that, they, you know, they, they had to work really hard to impose communism on, on the whole massive country. Anyway. So, 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 John, let's, so, so the, this, this is sort of more the demoralization stage then? In terms of uh, like that, con- that converting of of or or the changing of uh, generations' mindset, is that correct? Yes. So, so the first step of demoralization, Yuri Bezmenov says, it takes at least a generation because it takes a generation to educate a new generation of people. For the most part, we develop our understanding of the world and our place in the world. What we would call our worldview, we develop that during our teenage years. And we usually don't change our view of the world very much after about age 20 or so. So he said, once once you establish, like once you kind of infiltrate your ideas into the whole society, into particularly into the education system, um, but into every aspect of society, then you have converted the worldview of a whole generation and they'll spend the next 
you know, half a century, then slowly moving into positions of authority and responsibility within that society where their influence becomes ever and ever greater. So this started in earnest in the 1960s, which depending on, I mean, usually we measure generation as either 20 or 25 years, something like that. Well, the 1960s was roughly two generations ago. So this process of demoralization is largely complete, at least adequately complete. And we have, you know, I, all of us have a worldview. It's, it's sort of our own philosophy, although almost nobody thinks consciously about philosophy. And most people would say, ah, I don't think about that, you know, airy-fairy philosophy stuff. But all of us have a philosophy. We call it our worldview. And most of us don't know about it, don't realize how it got into our heads. I call it the default philosophy of the world. It's like, you know, the, the worldview that we came with. Like you get a computer and it has default programs on it. And uh, that's our default philosophy is essentially Marxist. And we don't know it. Hmm. And then so what, when we move into the destabilization, these are more active measures to actually bring about a societal change then? Yeah, so, so there's, and of course, there's much, more, there's much more to it than what we're touching on here, which is why, if you want to understand it, read my book, <laughs> what the hell's going on? So in destabilization, now you want to gradually take control of all of what Yuri Bezmenov refers to as the structures of society. So it's not just government itself. It's all of these sort of what we would sometimes call social institutions. You want to infiltrate education at all levels, including, well, in particular, the universities. You want to infiltrate uh, professional organizations and unions. And I don't know if people nowadays are aware of this, but back in the 1970s, when the Cold War was going hot and heavy, when I was coming of age, we knew that the that the communists were it had been infiltrating the unions and that like the, the Soviets even had their great, um, what do they call it? The International Labor School or something like that. In, in uh, Moscow, they invited labor leaders from all over the world. They would come, come to Moscow and we'll give you courses on, you know, how to operate your union, how to be a good labor leader and all this. Well, it, it, this was communist indoctrination, of course. I even, I was working in a union in the 1980s in the fertilizer business. And like our union president, he even went to, he was one of the many, many people who went to Moscow and went to their you know, labor union school. And uh, he was quite proud of that, as people were. This is kind of an honor, right, in a sort of a way. But this is part of their whole Soviet communist aversion. And it was also a great breeding ground for communist agents, right? They'd get labor leaders there and they, hey, you know, <laughs> you know you're, you're a good guy. You know, we can... Uh, they develop all kinds of agents. So in the communities, the Chinese nowadays are doing like 100 times more than the Soviets ever did. So, yeah, so it's taking control of all of these organizations, either overtly or mostly covertly. Right. So what we see now and people are looking around and say, how what's going on? Right. For example, we've seen our all across Canada and all across the rest of the world our colleges of physicians and surgeons are no longer representatives of their members. They're now controllers of their members. 
and I think Dr. Um, Mackis here in Edmonton has done a good job on some podcasts I've heard him on interviews of explaining how, for example, in, in Alberta, the College of Physicians and Surgeons is is more or less controlled by two people. And uh, one or both of them are lawyers. And he said the colleges of physicians and surgeons all across Canada are controlled by lawyers, not by doctors. <laughs> how has this happened? So there and we see the same thing in every professional association. I saw it as you know, a teacher for two decades. I, I saw it in the Alberta Teachers Association. Essentially, every professional association has become controllers, not representatives. And this has been a slow change. And that's exactly what totalitarian regimes do. Hitler, Mussolini, Lenin, Stout, they all did exactly the same thing. So could we say then that the destabilization phase is complete as well? Well, I think largely. Okay. Okay. And then obviously crisis is part of the, you know, the communist manifesto in terms of a violent takeover. Uh, I would argue that our crisis was actually this, this COVID-19 issue, which was sort of a, um, a crisis of a different nature. It wasn't violent, but it was still perpetrated across society. And I think that this has now led into normalization where. Oh yeah, uh, yes. hundred percent. With regard. Yeah. Oh yes. Go carry on. Yes, please. Yeah. In fact, what we have is not just one crisis, but we have a whole series of crises. They're rolling crises and and it's just ongoing. So in every fraud that you have uh, demoralization, destabilization, then the crisis and then normalization. So, yeah, for I mean, the most recent one that we've all experienced is this COVID fraud. And yes, there was a crisis phase. And what happened? The main the main purpose of the crisis is to allow governments to take emergency powers that then become permanent in the normalization phase. So all of our governments, I mean, this just seems to be no end to it. I mean, they keep coming up with more emergency powers. I mean, the latest one is, oh, now we need to control communication on the internet and we need, and th but then this bill is not just internet, it's everybody's personal communications. You know, you can't even send a personal email or a personal text message to somebody that says something the government doesn't like. This, this is an emergency power to deal with the crisis, but really it has nothing to do with that. It's all about government control. And the pattern, for example, we, we see it. There's so many parallels between what's happening now all over the world and what happened in Nazi Germany in the, in the 1920s and 30s. For example, you know, as soon as Hitler became chancellor and he was elected, he became chancellor in, I think it was 1932, might have been 33, I can't remember exactly. He, he sent his agents to go burn down the parliament buildings, right? We call this now a false flag. And he blamed the communists. He said, oh, the communists did this, those terrible guys. So that was an excuse to go round up the communists and uh, disable the, the communist party and remove them as a political force. And then he said, oh, this is a crisis. And he passed what was called at the time the enabling legislation to deal with this crisis. It enabled cabinet to make laws. Once the cabinet could actually pass laws without the whole parliament. The parliament was just theater. And it's even funny because they, after the parliament building was, was burnt down, the Bundestag, then parliament, the German parliament met in a theater. <laughs> it was all theater, right? So after that point, like we have now, you still had 
the form of democracy. There was still a parliament that met and debated and passed laws, and, but it didn't really matter because it was functioning as a dictatorship. Uh, cabinet could pass laws, and they did, and, but all of the members of cabinet were appointed by Hitler, so he was functionally a dictator after that point. Now, once COVID hit, I said, what's going on? We don't have a democracy anymore. I started calling it the, the, um, the dictatorship of the Privy Council. It wasn't even cabinet that was making the decisions. We went for two years without a federal budget. This is arguably the number one and most important function of parliament is to control government spending. So suddenly the Canadian uh, federal government budget ballooned by some $300 billion. And where did they get the money? Look, there's nowhere to find that much money in Canada. They just created it out of thin air. And so then we have then we have a financial and currency fraud. They got a chapter on that. And well, it's just crazy. So yes, that's the crisis. We had the COVID crisis. Oh, this is an emergency. You have to do all this stuff. And now the government needs emergency powers. And yes. we find that, you know what? They haven't given up these powers. They've just no, said, okay, and, we're going to relax this. We're going to, we won't force you to lock down. We won't force you to do this. But all of the legislation to do it again is still in place. Yes. And of course, as we move from crisis into normalization and people begin to argue for their own captivity, this now also becomes a generational problem to unwind this. I mean, uh, just yesterday we saw a group of, uh, 20-something girls that walked into a cafe with their masks on, you know, they, they sat down at a table, socially distanced, took their masks off to eat, put them back on to leave. So they, they, this is part of this mass formation psychosis or, or hypnosis um, where we've now arrived at, you know, there is a new, for some of us, there is a new normal, which, you know, probably isn't going away. And we have, uh, you know, there, there's stories of uh, young people having nightmares about, you know, dying or the planet dying because of all the garbage they're being taught in school about climate change. Um, so this, this normalization, which is essentially creating the new normal for people to accept this totalitarian takeover. Um, is there, I mean, again, I guess we're, we're, we're in that phase now. And what can we do to accelerate getting out of that? Oh, that's, that's a big thing to unpack, uh, Michael. Let, let me first of all just touch on it. Yes. So, like all of these crises, and there's multiple, right? I mean, the the even the COVID has more than one crisis, and you can be sure that there's another there's another health crisis of some sort coming. They're not done with this. It's uh, they you achieve a certain amount of success with each of these campaigns. If if we think of it as it really is, as a fifth generation war, we're in a war, right? And a war is made up of many different military campaigns and battles and all. Each campaign achieves some of its objectives, probably not all of its objectives. You run into uh, resistance in certain areas that you're unable to overcome. You don't make as much progress as you'd hope, but you achieve some things, right? And then you, you start to work on another campaign. So all of these are campaigns and all of them achieve some measure of success at least. So we have a large number of people in, in our society, particularly in urban areas, that are that have in a sense drunk the kool-aid you've now they believe this they're the true believers in the mass formation and they wear their mask i see them walk by you know on the sidewalk in front of my house it's you know 20 below zero and they're going by with walking their dog all by themselves and they have a mask on <laughs> safety first they, they, 
<clears throat> yeah, they, they, they didn't get the memo. So all of these people now form what you might call sort of a a political block that you can draw on for support that can and they then influence people around them because all of us influence people around us in some way. So and it's a similar way with the with the climate fraud. We have millions and millions of people who are believing certain aspects of it and then are influencing people around them. You know, oh, I'm going to buy an electric car because I'm going to save the environment or I'm going to do this thing or or, you know, you know, berating their friends, neighbors and family for doing stuff that they think is is killing the planet or, or whatever. Right. The, the, all of these these they're in a sense captured. Right. They become a force that you can draw on that have an effect. And one of the main effects, this goes back to the first stage of communist subversion, which is demoralization, is you tear a society apart. Like it's very difficult to um to battle a unified and determined enemy. You want to tear the get the enemy tearing itself apart from the inside. So all of these things that that set ourselves against our friends and neighbors and family. This is all part of the war. It's all part of these, the stage of demoralization. And, uh, it, and we see this in on so many levels. That's why I say there's not just one crisis. There's not just one campaign. There's not just one fraud. There's many, many, many. And there will be more to come. I mean, we're, we'll touch on that a bit. I mean, but we're entering into now the food crisis and we're entering into the war crisis uh, the, these are going to come up well they're already coming up we're seeing it but they're going to become more they're they're planned they're orchestrated and yeah many crises so in these in these previous uh, historic examples that you cover in the book in terms of people resisting these totalitarian takeovers or the communist subversion um, you bring up the importance of parallel systems uh, let's take a moment to, to talk about that and, and why this is so important uh, for us to exit the narrative and, and uh, create a better world. Yes, uh, Michael, that, it's very important because we do need to talk about solutions. And that's why the subtitle of my book is The Web of Fraud That Is Enslaving Everyone and How We Can Escape to Freedom. Because th there is a way to escape. There is a way to get back to freedom and all of the things that that you know really all of us want, even though many of us are um, deceived. Right and, and confused and all the rest of it. So the idea of, of what's called parallel structures it comes out of the the writing and the thinking of the great uh, Czechoslovakian dissident Václav Havel. And he later became the first president of the free Czechoslovakia after the fall of, of communism in Eastern Europe. But Václav Havel, uh, he was a poet, a writer, in Czechoslovakia under the communist regime. And he wrote about the idea that the, the communists at that time, or totalitarians in general, control everything in society. They control all of the structures. And he used the same term that um, Yuri Bezmanov uses. All of the structures are all of what we might call the institutions in our society. They're all controlled. You cannot fight against them. We cannot disassemble them. They, they are too firmly entrenched and powerful. What we can do and what we have to do is start building completely new structures for everything, what he called parallel structures. So since, you know, he, he was a writer and a, and a poet and kind of working 
within the kind of the cultural artistic community within Czechoslovakia. So he said, we need to form new cultural communities. Like all publishing is controlled by the state, all writing, everything is controlled by the state. We need to build new structures where people can get together to share real ideas, to write things, even if it's just, you know, essays, pamphlets. And this became, I don't know if many listeners are familiar with this term, but there was a whole underground uh, sort of literary publishing uh, movement within the whole communist bloc of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and it was called Samizdat. This was the illegal, the underground writings. And in a certain sense, that's what we're doing here. What you're doing, Michael, with your podcast, it's the new Samizdat. It's the way freedom-minded people can communicate with each other and share ideas outside the control of the mainstream media, which is all controlled. Okay, it's it's a, another controlled structure, and and all of the media, not just television, but you know, as we were chatting a little bit before uh, we went on air, you know, the whole entertainment business, the, the everything, it, it's it's all controlled. So we're the new Sami stock. So he said, so he said, Vaclav Havel said we need to build parallel structures, and the same with the economy, right? The government controlled the only place to buy food was government stores. The only place to buy anything was government stores. We need to come up with other ways of accomplishing this, other ways that people can get food. And some of us are doing this. I mean, I started a freedom group in Peace River. And one of the first things we did was to, to set up a, uh, a food co-op, right, where we could, because particularly at that time, right, going back a year now, they were talking about not being able to go to grocery stores unless you had your vax pass. And Quebec actually started doing this. People couldn't actually even get food. So that, you know, and the rest of us in the country said, holy cow, like they're going to try to starve us out. Well, yes, they are. And, and more of that will be will be coming in the future. You can be certain of it. So we, we formed a little food co-op that, you know, we find ways to supply ourselves with, with food, at least to begin to do that outside the existing structure. And now we see it with medicine. All of medicine is controlled. You know, for for years, starting in the 1960s, we thought, oh, socialized medicine is such a great thing. Well, now we're seeing the dark underbelly of socialized medicine. It's not such a great thing. They're, they control us with this because we've lost control of the relationship between patient and doctor. It's controlled. This whole relationship now is being dictated by the government. And yeah, of course, then we have. Sorry, go on, go on. Well, I know I'm, I'm kind of rambling on, but it's 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 just examples of how we need to build parallel structures. And there are now doctors and other, you know, healthcare professionals setting up alternative ways, right? Uh, uh, clinics that are outside the medical system. And there's various ways to do this. In, in my book, I say, pay them directly out of your pocket. Just bypass the government altogether. This, is, this has turned out to be not such a great deal that the government pays all our medical bills. It's your job to take care of your health, not the government. It's my job to take care of my health. And if we return to that, as I say throughout, take responsibility for your own health. It's up to you to make sure that you stay healthy and you don't need a doctor. But from time to time, we're going to need a doctor or a dentist or something. Pay them directly out of your pocket. Then you have control of this relationship. Yes, yes. And of course, you know, along that line, in terms of the 
top-down control. We have Bill C-36 coming into play in BC, which amalgamates the medical colleges into from 27 to 6. And uh, there's government appointed rather than elected directors. You know, I, I'm other than the medical doctors, because they they're clearly have abdicated their responsibility to their patients already. I'm kind of shocked that the rest of the practitioners are just falling in line and there's not more of an outcry about this. Uh, but, you know, this, this again, to me is, you know, one more step towards the totalitarian takeover. And, uh, you know, in terms of these parallel systems, uh, a dear friend of mine has put together, she was a, a fired nurse, a counseled nurse that's put together the Ezra Health Network, uh, which is actually, yes. it was it was slow to, slow to begin, but it's really gaining some momentum. And uh, that's probably going to result in uh, a franchise of facilities across uh, America here in not, the not too distant future. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Canada is a bit of a bit of a wasteland for that type of thing. Um, and people, it's been interesting, people really have been reticent to pay for that kind of service here in Canada because they're just so used to, you know, free health care. Well, you know, it's, it's not really health care. It's a, a sickness treatment system, right? Um, for a for profit. So people, and you're, you're very right, people need to start to take responsibility, whether that's for their health, or for where their food comes from. Ultimately, all this boils down to, are you a sovereign being, or do you need your daddy to tell you what to do, you know, how many sheets of toilet paper to use to wipe your butt. And, you know, it's, I mean, that's where it's going to come to, right? You know, you're going to have a dispenser where it puts out two tickets and that, or two, you know, two sheets and that's it. That's your daily allowance of toilet paper. Because of course, if you use more than that, it's going to cause uh, the, the earth to burn up, right? Or other, some other crazy things. <laughs> I think it's also important here to touch on the political spectrum so that the listeners understand some of the rhetoric which the mainstream news is spewing. Uh, give us your understanding of what the political spectrum and where the various ideologies fall in this continuum. You know, and we're talking here sort of the, the balance between right and left. And, you know, when, when you hear the media talking about far right extremist Nazis, I mean, that's basically an oxymoron. And, uh, you know, where, 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 are we, where do we kind of begin in terms of political spectrum and where are we now? Yeah, that's an, another big question. Thank you for, for leading into that, Michael. And I, again, I do talk about this in my book. There's two things maybe I'll touch on. And the first one is that I think we have to understand that uh, it's been called the uniparty. You know, we think we have all these different parties. And if we elect a different party, that everything will change. And we find that, you know, it doesn't matter who we elect, almost nothing changes. And there's several reasons for that. But, you know, I, I think essentially there's no difference between our, our any of our political parties today. They are all controlled. But Really, the thrust of your question was uh, my understanding of what we call the political spectrum. It has been completely, and this is part of communist subversion. This was intentional. And only a few years ago did I find that this out. But I've always wondered, for decades and decades, I've wondered, how did, for example, Nazism and, and fascism get put on the right hand of the political spectrum? Like, Hitler knew he was a socialist. That's left left hand of the political spectrum. I mean, his party, most people, I think, are aware that the, the Nazi is an acronym for what we translated into English is the Nationalist Socialist Workers Party. And that's what his policies were. They were nationalist and they were socialist. And like the it's a socialist party. Nazism is a brand of socialism. And in a similar way with Mussolini. Mussolini was a lifelong socialist. That's left wing. People say, oh, that's, you know, fascism is right wing. No, I mean, if, if you read carefully through his writings, and you have to read carefully because most of what he wrote is simply nonsensical. 
And uh, but, you know, he said, you know, the 20th century is going to be the century of fascism, which is the century of totalitarianism, which is, you know, government is everything. Oh, that's not right wing. That's that's socialism. That's left wing. So, yeah, all of these are left wing. How did that happen? There's a little story behind this. Like I say, I only learned this a few years ago. And some of our readers will remember our listeners, sorry, will remember enough about history of the, the Second World War that it started off with this this pact, this non-aggression pact right between Hitler and Stalin. And and then Hitler, of course, like it didn't bother him to lie, of course, as it is with all these totalitarians. So, you know, the things that the things that he signed were meaningless. You know, oh, yes, we'll have, you know, eternal friendship between our nations until it suits me to attack you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in, in 1939, August of 1939, right, they <laughs> the Soviets and the and the Germans uh, ganged up on Poland and destroyed Poland and uh, split it up between the two of them. But then two years later, then it suited Hitler to attack the Soviet Union, so he did. And but what many people don't know is that this was like um, almost an existential crisis for Stalin personally. This was an ideological crisis for him because he couldn't figure this out. He said, "Hold it, we're we're ideological brothers, right?" I mean, Hitler's a socialist, and in communism is a brand of socialism. If you know, if you want, really look at what Marx wrote and said, like, how can this be? How can, how can he fight against me? And for, you know, a month or so, Stalin was incapacitated. And this incapacitated the whole ability of, of the Soviet Union to respond. And his generals kind of turned to him and said, look, you got to do something. What are we going to do? But you know, Stalin had spent the whole decade before that absolutely gutting the officer corps <laughs> I'm getting, you know, there's the famous trials for, for year after year, and he had wiped out the whole, like anybody he thought was disloyal to him. He'd killed thousands and thousands of, you know, captains and majors and colonels and even generals. And so but there was nobody left who was going to make an independent decision. <laughs> right? Nobody was going to actually do anything in in the Russian army until Stalin said so. So they all turned, look, what are we going to do? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? And, and he was in this. Finally, he put it together this way. And, and he said, OK, so like Nazism is not really socialism. It's right wing, not left wing. That puts him on the other side of the spectrum. That makes him an enemy. OK, now I can fight against him. And it was Stalin that said, oh, Nazism is right wing. And it's Stalin that started calling Nazism right wing. And that's where this came from. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. So for our whole lives, we've been taught that Nazism is right wing. Right. And we have these idiots in Antifa. Right. They call themselves, I mean, literally, they say they are anarcho-communists. That's what they say. And they are fighting against fascism. You know, they're anti-fascist. That's where the, the name, you know, Antifa comes from. And there was ones active in the 1930s in, in Germany. That's where this comes from, anti-fascism. So Antifa, but, you know, they're so stupid, they don't even realize that they're they're fighting against exactly the same things they stand for and they wear these black uniforms exactly like mussolini's black shirts did they had black uniforms so the anti-fascists are fascists 
they even wear the same uniform. So, yeah, this is crazy. So this whole thing. So what is right wing and left wing? What is the political spectrum, really? And when I started researching this several years ago, you know, I found that there's something like a dozen different models. They use that word again, models. These aren't models in any meaningful sense of the word of, you know, what is the political spectrum? And some of them are like multi-level things with lines going here and boxes. This is nonsense. It's not hard to understand. The whole political spectrum from left to right is a continuum of personal responsibility and individual liberty. And on the left, you get less of these. As you move towards the right, you get more of them. So on the extreme right wing, you don't have Nazism and fascism. They're on the extreme left wing. On the extreme right wing, you have libertarianism, which nobody really understands. Even the people that call themselves libertarians, I don't really think understand it. But I mean, the, the libertarian idea is that government should be so small, it's almost non-existent. And that individuals have to, you know, be responsible for themselves and act in ways that do not infringe on the liberty and the rights of other individuals. So really then a, a summary would be, you know, the big government is, is a leftist concept. Small government is a right concept. The abdication of personal responsibility to government is, is a leftist approach, whereas personal responsibility and freedom is, is, a, is a right wing approach. In, in, You're uh, so concise. Why are you interviewing me? I'm so wordy, and you've got it all in a few words. <laughs> I'm distilling it from you. I'm distilling it from you. So that, so that's. I mean, that's interesting. I think that's 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 a fundamental point of the, uh, that people have to understand when they're be, you know when all this rhetoric and propaganda is being weaponized in terms of right and left and who's good and who's bad. I mean, ultimately, if somebody's telling you what to do, they're a left. They're a left wing socialist, communist, fascist. End of story. There's no argument there. If somebody says, you know, here's the keys, you figure out your life, you know, we'll provide the roads and uh, and highways and ports, uh, you, you conduct your business, you know, figure the rest out, you're dealing with a right wing personally, personal empowerment type of uh, jurisdiction. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think we, we, we touched upon sort of this concept of these imaginary crisis and forever wars. And uh, how, do they, how do they tie into the on, ongoing decay that we're seeing? And let's just touch base on, you know, so we have this climate change fraud, you know, what is the ultimate aim there? And then the same thing, you know, we have this fraudulent healthcare system. Um, you know, what is the ultimate goal of all this? And, and could you summarize the, the overarching uh, impetus for all this stuff as being led by a death cult? Uh, I, I don't use the word cult. Um, you could, I suppose. It's it's not a term that I use in this case. But I do call Marxism and all of its philosophical descendants. Marxism is a philosophy of death. And so I do, I do use that term. And, and then I take a chapter to explain why that is and, you know, why I say that, how it works how it ties in with all of the, you know, the death things that are going on. Um, I'm sorry, Michael, I'm, my mind is already wandering off into uh, sidetracks. Can you restate your question for me again? So, so again, we have, we have all these sort of the, the, these ongoing crises, these forever wars, the climate change fraud, you know, our, our fraudulent healthcare system, 
Um, all of these different elements which are being woven into this narrative, to me, it seems like uh, this is, you know, it's being directed by a death cult. And, you know, and you've said here that Marxism is a philosophy of death. You know, so again, in, in Canada now, if you're depressed, uh, you know, assisted suicide is an option. Uh, there was just a uh, um, Canadian Forces veteran who needed a wheelchair ramp, and she was told, well, maybe it's just easier to end your life than wait for your wheelchair ramp, because she's been waiting for two years. Um, so, you know, what's behind, what do you feel is behind this? You know, why are we seeing this? You know, and, so, and you've mentioned that, you know, Marxism is a philosophy of death. Why, why do you feel that is? Where, where, does that come, where does that come from? Oh, well, that's another great question, Michael. I, I think it's probably too big a question for me even to address adequately. But, you know, in, in the first draft of the book, I did have a chapter on Satanism and a chapter on sex. And, and I took both of those out because I realized that both of those issues are so misunderstood, so controversial, and so big that, that, that they will need books just to themselves. And I might write books on those at some point. But there definitely is a connection between a Marxist uh, philosophy and uh, and Satanism and and the whole idea of death instead of life, and it it connects on so many different levels. Can I take the liberty of sort of uh, going off in another direction? Because your question is quite broad, and. The first thing that came to my mind, actually, when you asked me that was that, yeah, all of these things are working together in in a great war. It's a fifth generation war that we're in. And there are many campaigns there. Each fraud and there, I talked about 10 or 12 different frauds in the book, focusing on four big frauds, but there's many. Each of the frauds have as their purpose, because fraud always has a purpose to collect money and power from many hands into few. So their purpose is, is control, is power. And each one of them is, is like a noose tightening around the neck of humanity. So for example, the climate fraud is all about controlling energy, controlling people by controlling energy. And particularly in the modern world, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that energy is everything. He who controls energy controls everyone. And, you know, all of us have probably heard now that they're, they're talking about and working towards this idea of personal carbon budgets. That's how they're going to control everyone's use of energy. Okay. Oh, you can't what it drive more than five kilometers from your home because you're exceeding your carbon budget. You can't do this because like this whole idea of a carbon budget is a fantasy. There is no such thing. In, in reality. So it's a tool to control people by controlling their use of energy. The, the, and the climate fraud is also now tying into the control of food, as we're saying. Oh, yeah, we can't, you know, we can't use tractors. We get, now they're saying you can't use fertilizer. They, uh, sorry, it takes me down another alley here. But, you know, now they're saying, oh, nitro nitrogen is now evil and we have to stop nitrogen pollution. And like, I haven't even heard any any pretense of a scientific argument about why nitrogen has to be outlawed. For goodness sakes, before long, they're going to outlaw the whole periodic table. This is well, bizarre. Think, There's yeah, no science. We, we've reached a point where it doesn't matter if there's any scientific, uh, actual scientific evidence. <laughs> if somebody on the news 
says that there's consensus. The uh, the brainwashed, you know, simply insert that and they they believe it. Yeah. So so the climate fraud is now extending into controlling nitrogen and uh, nitrogen and carbon. Well, that's life. I mean, carbon is is life itself on this planet, right? They're all life is carbon based and carbon chemistry is so important we even have a special uh, major division of chemistry for it it's organic chemistry because it's the chemistry of all organisms everything that lives is the chemistry of carbon and arguably the next most important element is nitrogen maybe you could say oxygen nitrogen oxygen anyway like every organic molecule is made up of carbon oxygen and oh, hydrogen, I suppose, and, and most of them nitrogen. Nitrogen is a component in every amino acid. And so it is part of every protein. Without nitrogen, there's no protein, no plant proteins, no animal proteins, right? You, you no, restrict no nitrogen. It, it, yeah, in the real sense, no life. You, you restrict nitrogen, you restrict food production. And so then they're going to use this whole climate fraud to then control food as well. So they're, they're engineering a food shortage in the whole planet. We, it's, we can see this unfolding right before our very eyes. And then, because it's very difficult to control something that's abundant, you know, to, in order to control something, it needs to be scarce. So we, they're gonna make food scarce so they can then control food and they can, you, we, you get hungry, you'll do what the government says. And when you can only get food from the government, <laughs> right? You'll do what they say. You have to get yeah. this shot in your arm before you can get food. And this is the food that you can get. It's insect food and just trust us on it, right? We're going to get this insect food that was made in, in laboratories or factories somewhere. And we really have no idea what goes into it. They've already created lettuce uh, with the mRNA vaccine in the lettuce, for goodness sakes. You can be darn sure they're going to have mRNA vaccines or whatever else they want to put into the prepackaged, you know, factory-made insect food that's going to go into everything. You see, you got to be careful what you buy in terms of snack foods and stuff in the in the stores now because you, you know, I've seen you know, some of the boxes now say, you know, insect protein and stuff like that. Like, like, what else is in there? We don't know. So they're using the climate fraud to control food. They're, they're controlling, controlling humans also by controlling their bodies and their minds. So that by what goes into their bodies and their minds. So the COVID fraud is about controlling bodies and minds. The whole, um, you know, misinformation, disinformation, controlling you know, the internet and all the control of media, propaganda, all this stuff. That's about what can, it's about controlling what goes into our minds. So they're going to control all people by controlling what goes into our bodies and what goes into our minds. And then finally, that we know have coming, I call it the one ring to rule them all, is the great money fraud, where they'll control all money, which will control everything. So Don, let me let me throw this out for your consideration, which which kind of comes back to you know what is the purpose of all of these, and uh, several authors throughout time have sort of raised this this possibility that the 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 true human condition is one of love and light. That's kind of you know what humans are are here to to undergo, undertake in, in their in their lives and, and fulfill their their material journey as a human being. There's been a number of events 
in 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 our history. Uh, one of them in in fifteen twenty when when the um, Spanish conquistadors marched on Teotihuacan and uh, Montezuma in in response, you know, began murdering hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, you know, there was literally mile long lineups in every cardinal direction with you know ankle deep blood pouring down from the pyramid um, from the sacrifices. <laughs> and this to me is sort of the archetype. Uh, or the the antithesis of human behavior, and so it makes me wonder, you know, on on a spiritual level, you know, when we talk about this good uh, versus evil and light versus dark battle, is there a possibility here that um, you know there is actually demonic presence on Earth, which which has influenced some of these people, and we could say, you know, some of these leaders like Stalin. I mean, we know that Hitler was deeply involved in the occult. Uh, and, and clearly when you enter those realms, if you're not being protective of yourself, you can be, you know, negative entities can attach to you. And we have other examples like the Inquisition and, you know, the, the list goes on of these sort of atrocities, which are very anti-human. I would argue that this present batch of leaders, you know, whoever these puppet masters are behind, uh, the useful idiots, which we see on the TV screens are probably, also in this demonic possession where when we look at all this, like, you know, so what, what does all this do? It controls people, it makes them unhealthy, unhappy, et cetera, et cetera. Their currency isn't necessarily what you describe as power and money, because at some point when you print the money and you have all the power, what more do you need? I think that their currency is actually pain and suffering and misery, that at an energetic level, they are seeking to harvest this energy from humanity. And that's that's why this has become so prevalent and, and the, the, you know, it's almost like a well-oiled machine now. Uh, and even, you know, we, we talk about the monetary fraud and the debt crisis and, you know, in debt slavery, you know, you're, you're, you're paying imaginary money and uh, you're, you're, you've borrowed imaginary money. You're paying interest on your imaginary money from the blood, sweat and tears of your life. So in a way this, you know, whether the, whether the loan officer at the bank is privy to this, I mean, he's got his, you know, he's making his commission from placing that loan. He's probably not, he's, he's, he's a useful idiot in the process, but somebody in the background of that is an orchestrating of this are seeing the, the benefits. They are the ones that are harvesting this energy. What are your thoughts there? <laughs> Michael, you're brilliant at asking questions that would take a whole book to answer. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, there's lots to unpack there. So the question you've asked goes far beyond what I've written in my book. It is a spiritual book fundamentally, but I, I do talk in rather general terms um, about spiritual things, partly to be um, so it's something that everyone uh, can can grasp, everyone can relate to, regardless of what your religious background or your spiritual understanding is, or even if you have none at all. Uh, you know, all of us understand the general concepts of good and evil, even, even if you're an atheist. So, um, but when you talk about non-physical entities, demons and that sort of thing, it's not something I get into my book. I, of course, know a little bit about these things. I don't consider myself knowledgeable enough in these areas to write about them. But many people who know more than I do agree with, with you 100% that when, when you kind of go astray into what we might call the dark side, if we could take that that term from Star Wars, right? <laughs> um, where, where do I begin? 
in, in my book, I focus almost entirely on, on what is physical reality, what is material reality. And I am trying to be careful to distinguish between what exists in material reality and what does not exist in material reality. Now, all of us, whether we realize it or not, all of us know there is some sort of non-material reality. Ideas, thoughts, emotions, concepts, theories, all of these exist only in our mind. Our mind does not have a, is not a material thing. Consciousness is not a material thing. But all of us have a mind. All of us know we're conscious. So obviously there is such a thing. So we could call this generally a non-material reality. Now, there are non-material entities. Every religion accepts this. In Christianity, we call them angels and demons and seraphim and you know all, all this sort of stuff. And, and God itself, every religion has some understanding of God so as a non-physical entity of some sort. Now, when we get into demons and all these things, those people who are Satanists, and there are really people who are Satanists, it might be a surprise, there, there are various you know, churches of Satan and stuff like that. These people do worship Satan, literally. It's... Now, they believe that Satan is a real entity. Most people in the world today don't believe that Satan is a real entity. Whether Satan is a real entity or a personification of evil or a force or an energy, or like, it, it doesn't really matter how you conceive of such a thing. But those people who are real Satanists believe Satan exists as a real non-physical entity. And this is, as bizarre as this sounds, to the majority of people, you know, once you start delving into this, what what these what are elites or the you know the people in positions of power, they really are Satanists. Satanism is the you might call it an unofficial religion of our elites of the world. Hmm. Uh, there are pictures of um, Klaus Schwab, for example, dressed up in these suits that look satanic. Uh, Elon Musk, for example, on last Halloween, dressed up in a suit that had the upside down cross, right? The pics and, uh, you know, images of Baphomet. Well, this is exactly what Satanists do. These are their symbols. Whether the majority of people, you know, believe they exist or not, these are the symbols that Satanic, uh, Satanists use and, and, um, and believe in and worship. So... Are, are there real non-physical demons? And Yeah, I think so. But I'm not the one to explain this because I don't understand it well enough. Okay, okay. And then to conclude this segment here, in terms of when, when, when somebody needs to become aware or understand whether they're dealing with a fraud or a mass formation uh, hypnosis, what is a surefire means of testing to see whether this is truth or, or a false narrative? I don't know if there are surefire means, but on on two levels, on, on the physical level, on the level of the material, we must use our own minds, our own logic, 
our own understanding of material reality and the material evidence that we have before us. We must rely on our own intelligence. And, and, and I say this, like, trust no one. It, the advice that Donovan gives to, uh, to, uh, to Indiana Jones, trust no one. And it turns out that Donovan's the one you shouldn't trust, right? <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, we've come to a place where all of, all of our institutions and all of the people that lead our institutions have shown themselves to be purveyors of lies. And, and when someone lies to you, we lose trust. And so I have lost trust. So sometimes they'll be telling the truth. Sometimes they'll be telling lies. How am I to, to be able to tell the difference? And many people say, well, who are you to trust? So I say, unfortunately, trust no one. You're going to have to figure out everything on your own and look to physical evidence. The people who have got the shot, they're dying in higher numbers than people who haven't got the shot. They're being hospitalized for COVID, so it's called, in higher numbers than people who haven't got the shot. This should is his physical evidence that this was not a vaccine. This was a weapon. <laughs> so there's physical evidence. Trust the evidence of your own eyes, ears, and logic. So that's on a material level. On, on a more spiritual level, what can we trust? All of us have, got, and I, I say this in the book, all of us have got to, to learn to seek the divine within ourselves and to trust our own hearts. We get, we get a feeling, a sense. It's not a feeling like, the, like you feel things with your fingers in your hands or an emotion you know, that you might feel. No, it's an, it's an inner knowingness. It's an intuition. And most of us are not very attuned to this. But in the last couple decades, I've tried more and more, you know, along my own spiritual journey, to become more attuned to what we might call the divine within, the spirit within, the guidance of God that comes from within. For decades, I have prayed, God, lead me. Here I am. Um, you know, show me the path you want me to take. Show me. And this, this is a slow a process of development of being able to connect with that divine within but on a spiritual level that's where all of us need to go to connect to the divine within ourselves and we get a sort of a sense about things right just like we get a, a sort of a sense about people and about even places that we go in like you you, you go into a church you get us there's a certain feeling there right you go into a funeral home <laughs> there's a different feeling there Right? You go into, uh, you walk into a wedding. There's a certain feeling there. You feel it on a level that's that's not physical, and it's not really emotional either. You go into a funeral. There's a different feeling that you know. Back in the '60s, in the hippie days, when I came of age, we called it vibrations. You know, I'm getting those good vibrations, and really, they are vibrations that we perceive on an inner level. And we do get a sense about things, about people, about events. Some things just don't sit right with us. And we think there's something wrong about that. And, and that's, that's our warning. That's our little, our little inner warning light going off. And in other times, we get a sense that, yes, this, this just feels right to me. We get that sense with people, with uh, places, 
we also get that sense with information, with ideas, with everything. And so on an inner level, on a spiritual level, that's where we need to turn to. On a physical level, our own intellect, physical evidence, not simply the stories, separating propaganda, truth from lies. We do this by not believing anything we're told, but seeking truth through our own powers of logic and physical material evidence. That's why my book is all about evidence. And of course, the other means there would be if you are being criticized or censored for asking questions about the narrative, I would imagine that that also would indicate that the narrative isn't going to stand up to real scrutiny. Well, I'd say, in fact, I've got a I've got a blog post coming out with this this very idea. Science asks questions. Propaganda prohibits questions. Yes. Which yeah. do you see? Yes. Yeah, Which do you a, see? Yeah. That's an important statement. So uh, moving on here, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, social media and I guess media in general? Um, are, this, are the social media platforms simply mind-numbing entertainment or are they ultimately a highly sophisticated surveillance and mind control platform? All of the above, but mostly the second. They're mostly, and you know, I point out in, in my book that almost all of these platforms were developed by DARPA. They're developed by the military for military applications. Um, you know, Facebook is, when it came out, was essentially exactly the same as a DARPA project. And that DARPA project wound up as soon as Facebook launched. And, you know, it's the, <laughs> and the same thing with the internet itself. The internet itself was a military project, right? It was, it was called the ARPANET. It was the advanced, it was called ARPA before it was called DARPA, this, this kind of secret uh, U.S. military uh, research group, right? It, it was the Advanced Research Projects Agency when it started in, I think, the 1950s. I forget the date. I have the date, I think, in my book. Um, but then I think it was about the 1970s that they changed the name a little bit to Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So DARPA, that's what the acronym stands for. And now, of course, it's branched just in the last year. We have BARPA, right? It's the, um, I, I think they call it Biodefense Advanced Research. So they've separated this now into, you know, separate areas of research. So we have, you know, more and more going on. So the internet started as the ARPANET. It was a military program to to connect computers and information. And yeah, it's um, I think could have it wrong, but I think the whole Google um, uh, the goal of the, the the you know the programming behind the Google came I think from a DARPA project, but most of these most of these uh, technologies that we use today were developed for military application, and in fact, behind the scenes are still used for military applications. All of the, like Google, Google is the big one because right? almost everything runs on on Google, and Google and Facebook, and you know we're seeing it come out with. Um, uh, um, Twitter, you know, how they're all connected to government. And all of this information, you know, slips out the back door intentionally. There's the back door into the military for all of this stuff. And, you know, most of it is most likely all being recorded. Everything like every 
every uh, cell phone call you make, every uh, social media post or connection you make, everything that happens on the internet, everything that goes through most computers um, is all being recorded. And, and that's why a few years ago, the United States government opened this massive, massive data storage center in Utah. And most likely it's it's almost all being recorded there. And people say, oh, they can't possibly watch everything. They don't have to watch everything. They just record it. And if you, Michael Martins, if they have a reason, you know, to dig up dirt on you, they just go back and, you know, they have the internet AI means of searching it all. They just go back, search up everything that's attached to you. And they'll come up with whatever information they want. And people say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter if the government watches what I do because I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything illegal. That's not the point. It has nothing to do with illegality because they will turn any innocuous thing you do into a crime against you. They, they can do that. They just have to have a reason to go after you, and they will. They have all the data already they need to convict you of whatever they want to convict you of. I mean, they're going after Donald Trump. I said, oh, yeah, he's got classified information. Well, as president, he has the authority to, to declassify anything he wants. So really, the true purpose or one of the true purposes of these social media platforms then is, is sort of a um, surveillance. I mean, it's, it's a quiet, passive surveillance that everything that's moving through is being collected and analyzed and stored. Um, and then I guess, secondly... You know, we, we saw it, so for myself in about 2017, you know, I wasn't a, an avid Facebook user, but I kept in touch with some of my friends around the world. And I came across an article which was written by Cambridge Analytica, which was right around the time that the, you know, we went from a, the like to the, the multiple emotions. And this, there was this whole article that was describing how they had collected, you know, 500,000 users data and they were through the beta test of these emotions and they were actually able to to demonstrate that they could with the use of an algorithm feed people certain information which then they would the number of angries or sads <clears throat> or happy or whatever it was they could modify these and you know that was five years ago and so i think not only this is no longer just surveillance but i think it's also mind control where you know whether it's through censorship or more uh, complex means um, we are seeing these as a pervasive tool towards mind control would you agree Absolutely, Michael. Absolutely. And, you know, I, as, as you know, you, you read my book, I have a chapter on mind control. And, you know, I, I make the point in there that you will choose surveillance or sovereignty. You cannot have both because surveillance is not benign. It, it, it's not. And it maybe quite a bit to explain that and, and help people understand that. So, um, I'm not sure I can get into that here, but yeah, it's it's surveillance. Absolutely. We're being surveilled all the time. And if you want individual sovereignty, then we are going to have to take steps to evade surveillance. And we must do this on a personal level. Uh, eventually, maybe we'll get to a point in our society where, you know, we come up with some broader uh, limits to this surveillance, but it's it's not happening now. It's it's increasing. And um, yeah, surveillance or sovereignty, we, we will choose. So, and of course, as you say, and, and you know what? And you know, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica and the stuff that you talked about there. And, and yes, the simplest and easiest form of mind control 
is information control. If you control the information that goes into someone's mind, you control their mind. Yes, sure. Especially if it's repeated multiple times a day and you've got bright colors. And, and I, there, I guess there was actually um, another another article I read where the, the color shifts that they're using, the, the tone tonalities of these websites are actually at a certain frequency where people become more suggestive to absorbing information. So, I mean, this, this is a highly, highly sophisticated and developed technology that unless you're aware of it and involved in that, uh, you know, or that science or those operations, you know, 98% of the population or more has absolutely no knowledge of this. Oh, right. I would say 99.999% of the population has no knowledge of it, even though I did some research on it and put some, you know, some of the, explain some of the technology of mind control in that chapter in mind control. Like, I'm not an expert in that area. And like, you can be absolutely certain that they've got technologies and are using technologies that are way beyond even what I put in there. And what I put in the book is, is all existing technology. People think, oh, wow, this is futuristic type stuff. Uh-uh, it's all existing. And and people are looking at, for example, Elon Musk and his brain implants. And now they say, oh, you know, we've been doing the brain implants with animals. And now, and now they're starting to do, um, you know, testing of their brain implants on humans. But you know what? This is a bit of a distraction. The technology is way beyond that. You don't need to physically put anything into your brain. You know, I explain in the book what's called remote neural monitoring and remote neural control. They can monitor our, our minds remotely and they can control our minds remotely. And they've been doing this with what are called targeted individuals, thousands of them and all over the world, really, where people are targeted remotely. And it's not a pleasant experience. And it seems that they have the ability to do this, not, not simply on an individual level, but on at least on a regional level where they could, in a whole geographic area, remotely monitor and control the minds, the minds of people using, uh, you know, various uh, frequencies. Like, this is bizarre, but like, they don't need to put physical implants into your brain. Hmm, interesting. So... You know, you, you, you touched on fifth generation warfare and, and it's, it, we'll, we'll let uh, listeners kind of dig into that more in your book, but who are the architects of this fifth generation warfare? You know, you talk about the they and the military. I mean, is, is, are the, the shadow leaders behind all this, you know, or the, the CIA and the military industrial complex? I mean, are these really the global puppet masters here? <laughs> I'm not sure anybody knows who the real puppet masters are. But one and I do have a chapter in my book that looks at like how is this all functioning because we don't know the structure. We like that's the, one of the big questions of the world today. What is the real governance structure of the world? Because what we're seeing cannot happen uh, normally. It's never happened before in the history of the world where you have you know a hundred to two hundred governments all over the world bringing in exactly the same policies at exactly the same time. This, this level of policy coordination is not possible without the policy being dictated from some higher level. Even within a corporation, you could never have a degree of policy uh, coordination between different divisions or departments of a, of a company unless those policies are dictated from above. Um, so we can see that. We can see how it's functioning 
but we don't know what the real structure is. And there's a investigative journalist from the UK by the name of Yian Evans, who has done great work, and, and I, he put it out in uh, Collective Commons. It's free. I, I did credit him in my book, and I've, I've, I've added a few of my own insights to his understanding, and I call it the, the policy hierarchy. For this reason, we normally think about how our government works and how we're taught in school, for example, how the Canadian government works, and that we elect people to parliament, and the parliament sets government policy. Right. Oh, you know, we're going to do this thing. We're not going to do that thing. You know, always setting government policies. That's what bills do. But when we see that policy, government policies are apparently coming from some level above the level of governments. Where is this policy actually being made and how is it? How does this work? So in the policy hierarchy, it's not a, it's not a structure. It shows the functioning. Okay, so how are things functioning? Well, we can see that various policy is being set by uh, various groups that we call sort of the the policy the policy formulators, and the policy formulators. Um, sorry, I'm I'm just going to turn to my notes here for a minute. Sure. The the policy makers. So policy is being made in in certain organizations like the central banks, like the World Economic Forum, like the Council on Foreign Relations, and there's many many of them. These are essentially what we might call most of them we might call think tanks. So they're actually making the policy. Then that policy flows down to a group of organizations that we can call policy distributors. This includes, importantly, the United Nations and all of the agencies of the United Nations. So, for example, we mentioned earlier about this, this demonizing of nitrogen as somehow we have to control you know, nitrogen in the world. Where did that policy come from? Well, it's coming through the, the IPCC, right, the International uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is an agency of the United Nations. But it didn't really come from them. It came from somewhere above them. They're distributing that policy. So they've distributed that policy to uh, the European Union government. And, and the European government now is part of a group that we call the policy enforcers. So all governments are now in the category of policy enforcers. They enforce policy that comes down to them from higher levels. So we see governments, every government in the world, forming their own bills and laws to now now enforce the new policy on nitrogen or the new policy on controlling internet communications, right? Virtually every government in the world in recent months has been bringing in almost identical bills to control the internet. And then we, below them, we have the level of policy propagandists. That's, you know, people that actually push the propaganda to both, you know, um, uh, so, the mainstream media, the social media, the fact checkers, you know, organizations like this, then, you know, are the, the propaganda arms and uh, both to both um, promote the ideas about the policy before it actually trickles down through all this level and then to support it once it's that and to demonize anybody who disagrees with these policies. 
Right? So we see the mainstream media demonizing anybody who actually talks about ways to treat COVID-19. You know, all these people are deplatformed. This happens at the level of the policy propagandists. And all the rest of us are the policy subjects. And some of our listeners may have experienced what I've had, trying to actually change government policy. And we've realized how futile that is. Take, for example, the great uh, truckers um, convoy to Ottawa. We had, at least on one weekend, over a million ordinary citizens in Ottawa protesting against these policies had absolutely no impact. They didn't even talk, <laughs> like no impact. So, and then for example, at, at almost exactly the same time, you had a group of what on, can only be called terrorists in Northern British Columbia, making a violent and quasi military attack on on uh, on infrastructure like pipeline infrastructure and, and companies who are building pipeline in northern British Columbia, how would they treat it? Oh, nothing. It just you know was allowed to happen. And and we even had our federal government in that and the the like the indigenous um, blockades that happened the year before that. Oh, we'll just you know this is okay. We can't you know we, we have to respect their rights and you know we need to have a dialogue with these people. When a million ordinary citizens show up in, in Ottawa, you don't talk to them. They're called terrorists and racists and a fringe minority. So we can, we can see what, um, who's a policy propagandist and who's not by the way that they're officially treated, right? That all of these um, uh, like indigenous revolts in shutting down, you know, railways and roads and bridges and I think it was early 20, was it early 2020? I don't recall, sorry. Um, you, you know, all of those were treated very leniently. The same thing with Antifa and Black Lives Matter, you know, riots all over the United States. They would, the police were told to just basically stand down and let it happen. Whereas, you know, you, you have some poor grandmother in Ottawa and the police run her down with their horses, for goodness sakes. So you can see, the policy propagandists, they're allowed to happen, but anybody else, they're completely, um, you know, if, if it's just policy subjects like you and me who are speaking up, you know, we're, uh, we're dealt with very, very harshly. So this is the whole policy hierarchy. Hmm. Interesting. And of course, that comes back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, testing whether you're in a fraudulent narrative or not. Uh, you know, if you're not able to question the narrative, then, you know, you're clearly in a, uh, in one. And so, in what well, the, the, you're, so you're, you're outside. if you can't if you can't ask questions, you're outside the official narrative. Yes, yes. So, I mean, it would seem that the ultimate purpose of this great reset and agenda 2030, you know, is a totalitarian takeover. I mean, I think it's pretty clear to see that all of these it's, it's an anti-human movement, which you know will at some point, if it is successful, result in the complete domination of, of humanity and control. Uh, yes, that's quite obviously their intention, their intended outcome. And this goes right back to the very beginning of the book where it's, you know, communism is is not understood. We've been taught a bunch of nonsense in school about what communism is and what it's not. Communism is not a political system. It's not an economic system. Communism is about one, and totalitarianism in general, is about one thing and one thing only, and that is power. Power 
control. That's what it's about. Nothing else matters. And that's why all of these these different flavors of totalitarianism are meaningless, right? People argue about, oh, well, in communism, you have government owning, uh, you know, uh, everything. And in Nazism, you have private individuals. It doesn't matter. It's about power and control. How you do it doesn't matter. Uh, for example, Mussolini was very tolerant of, of Christianity. He, like, he was operating in a country that was where 95% of the people were staunch members of the Roman Catholic Church. He could never have gained or maintained power if he openly opposed the Catholic Church in Italy at that time. So he had to be acquiescent, whereas in general, all, all totalitarians tried to destroy religion. If Mussolini had remained in power long enough, he would have gradually taken steps to, uh, to destroy uh, religion as well. It, it has to. Totalitarianism has to destroy religion because it presents an alternate version of reality. And as Hannah Arendt says in her famous book about totalitarianism, they must control everything. It must be total control, not just political control. Totalitarianism must ultimately control even reality itself. And that's what the mind control is all about. That's what the censorship and the propaganda is all about, controlling our perception of reality so that we live in what is essentially a fantasy. And we are not able then to take appropriate actions because we're responding to a fantasy instead of responding to reality. No, well said. Um, in your book, you say that millions across the planet have abdicated the responsibility to democracy and been going along with this encroaching totalitarianism. You said that if we ever want to see the dawn of a new day of freedom, we must struggle through the night of responsibility. We cannot have day without night. You cannot have accomplishment without struggle. You cannot have freedom without responsibility. Why do you think that so many amongst us fear this personal responsibility and abdicated their autonomy to authority? In, in many ways, Michael, all of us are, are still children. We haven't really completely grown up in many ways. And all of these... Like all of all of these control measures that we're we're gradually seeing them as control measures have been sold to us as great humanitarian things. Socialized medicine, right, is a great, wonderful thing. Yes, why should anybody? This is um, inhumane that we should allow people in our society to die for lack of medical care or to suffer for lack of medical care when we have the means collectively to provide this medical care. It, it, I mean the the philosophical and ethical uh, arguments that we're presented with in favor of all of these programs are very convincing and we've been convinced and most of us continue to believe that but as we're seeing with medicine it has morphed into a control system and all of these things if if we give up our responsibility who's responsible for my health i am not you not my neighbor i'm responsible for my health and if I give up that responsibility for my health, then I, I give up that I give up my independence, my control over myself in the same measure that I give up my responsibility with the same idea with government pensions. And heck, I'm getting Canada pension now. I mean, I paid into it for 40 years or more. Right. And people think, well, it's my right. I paid into this. And, but you know what? All of us have been and on a certain level. It, yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Why should why should people who have you know worked to build this country and our communities for forty or fifty years why, why should we you know leave them in poverty and destitution? Surely we can take care of them. Yeah, of course we can, but 
Now you start looking at this on an individual level. You, who's responsible for taking care of my old age? Me, not my friends, not you, not my neighbors, not even my family. I'm responsible and I'm per perfectly capable. I'm able to do that. But if I give up that responsibility and say, ah, you know, I won't worry about saving for my retirement because you know, I'm going to get a government pension. Nope. Then I have put my, uh, by giving up my responsibility, I've given up my independence. And we're going to see this when they switch to the um, central bank digital currencies, all government payments will be made in the central bank digital currency. So those of us who are receiving a government pension, if you want to continue receiving your Canada pension, you're going to have to, you know, get the digital ID, get the go along with the digital money, you'll be trapped in their system. I call it the one ring to rule them all. Once you once you get into that, you're trapped. So when when they start paying Canada pension in the in did in this central bank digital currency, that's the end of my receiving um you know Canada pension. I, I'm not going into their system. And I think that will be a wake up call for many Canadians and others around the world who haven't quite woken up yet. Uh, when they see, hold it, you mean the government actually has all my money? Yeah, it's better if you don't think of it as money and don't think of it as yours. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and then in closing today, Donald, I got a question for you here. And I've asked a few other guests. The, the use of plant medicines seems to have been a fundamental and intrinsic component of human evolution for at least the last 60 or 80,000 years. Would you agree that the focus of our present civilization on the wakeful problem-solving state of being and the rejection of altered states of being is a fundamental component of our present stunted development? Oh, once again, lot, lots of ideas in that, Michael. Excellent. All of our medicines, almost all of our medicines, as far as I know, are ultimately based on plants now. They're just refined, right? I mean, the aspirin, acetylsalicylic acid, that hard multi-syllable word that's hard to say. I mean, it was originally isolated, I think, from uh, the bark of willow trees. It's, uh, you know, almost all of these medicinal chemicals come from plants and, or are the uh, sort of the chemical analogs, right? You can, you can change, they're, they're uh, complex organic molecules, most of them, and you can change a little bit in the in the structure of the molecule and have it, and it will perform the same function within the body. So almost all of our medicines are based on plants right now. Here, so, here, here, Donald, here I'm thinking more of um, you know the use of of uh, perception altering uh, psychedelic su uh, substances, like the the Egyptians were using the blue lotus. You know, in, in Meso and South America, they're using the ayahuasca. Um, you know, the, the ancient Israelites were using hashish. There's a very, very strong historical component of the use of uh, psychedelic substances uh, in the evolution of humanity, which seems to have ended, you know, 150 or some odd years ago. And of course, there was a, a resurgence in the 60s, which was, I, I believe, you know, part of that drop in, drop out, resist Vietnam War. Those students, that body of people were oppressed because they were their viewpoints were beginning to drift from the official narrative and were moving into a more spiritually uh, refined or more spiritually focused uh, narrative or paradigm. Uh, yes, various mind-altering substances have been used as, as far back into human history as we can see. And they're being used today too. I mean, the, the ahawaska thing has really blossomed as far as I can see in recent years. I mean, you can, there's a, 
the whole field of ahawaska tourism now you can go to peru and ecuador and even mexico and places in central america and you know like they'll take you on an ahawaska trip and so i'm very very skeptical of all of these things yes particularly with ahawaska i've never used that and and you know outside of drinking alcohol, which for most of my life I did a little bit too much of, you know, I have not used these things and I'm very skeptical of them. Um, excuse me. As I say in my book, these are not a route to spiritual growth and development. And uh, even ahawaska, its use within, you know, South American cultures was always very restricted and and very ritualized it's not just something you you know go home after work and i'll do a little ayahuasca tonight no this was always within a very um uh, there was it was more like a a ritual right it was very ritualized and it was a ritual and you didn't do it on your own you did it with help and and all the rest of it to guide you on this journey to help you come out of it afterwards and to help you make spiritual sense of whatever of whatever you happen to experience and the same thing with our you know native traditions in north america of the um um you know usually during initiation uh, of young men particularly i don't know if the same thing was with young women but you know when you do this initiation from boyhood into manhood you would typically fast for three days and go on the what do they call it like a spirit journey or something i can't remember exactly but it's a similar sort of thing and there would be older men that would help you through this tell you what to expect tell you what to do what to not do afterwards to help you to understand the meaning of the experience for you to incorporate that into your life now what does that mean for how you're going to live your life it's not casual these are these are initiatory rituals and but even even at that this is not a route to spiritual growth spiritual growth and development is all a pro well not all but it's partly a process of increasing our what we might call our mental and spiritual acuity of being more aware not dulling our awareness with drugs but being more aware of ourselves as at both in the material world and also on a spiritual level to do this at the same time. We are spirits in materiality. We are intended to incorporate both the material and the spiritual into our lives, you know, to, to, to combine those, not to like dissociate, not to like drop out of materiality, but to immerse ourselves in materiality with a more acute awareness of spiritual reality at the same time. I'm not sure if that's really what you wanted so I, me to get. I, I've got some homework for you, uh, John, then. Uh, a couple books for you to read. One, Food of the Gods by Terence McKenna. Um, that's a very interesting read. I think you'll find that quite interesting. And the other one is a, is a pretty heavy read called Supernatural by um, Graham Hancock. That's about a 700-page book. Uh, I think you'll have a radically different opinion on the subject uh, once you've concluded those two volumes. All right. I I try to remain open-minded and, and it's not I'll, something I know a lot about and I'm delighted to learn more. 
I'll send you the uh, the links there uh, via email when we get off here. Um, so then, in in conclusion, uh, again, your your new book. Give us the title and uh, and where uh, listeners can find it. Sure. The title is "What the Hell Is Going On," and the subtitle is "The Web of Fraud That Is Enslaving Everyone and How We Can Escape to Freedom." It's available. It should be available now at pretty much all of your favorite online bookstores. Most people will look on Amazon, of course, and you can find it there. Um, Amazon Canada has got a ridiculously high price on it. Amazon UK, I've noticed, has a reasonable price in British pounds. Uh, so it should be available on all the Amazons, although Amazon takes forever, it seems, to get the ebook up. I don't know why. So if you want the ebook version, then you'll need to go to my publisher, which is booklocker.com. The best place to find all of these links is just right at my website, which is easy to remember www.cominghomespirit.com. And if you go there, I've got direct links, the best places from my publisher. And if wherever you are in the world, like here in Canada, um, Amazon is charging you a ridiculously high price. Get it from my publisher. They have a more reasonable price. It's it's like $22.95 in US dollars, which should work out to about $30 Canadian. And they're charging about $40 for some strange reason. I don't know why. Hmm. A little, little uh, capitalism at work there. <laughs> Greed, I would call it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great, Don. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, been a pleasure. And uh, we'll keep in touch here and I'll get you off those uh, couple titles for you to review. And um, all the all the best, sir. Uh, we'll uh, chat in the future. Thank you very much, Michael. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Merry Christmas to you and all your family and friends. And God bless you. God bless you as well, sir. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>